A lot has been said about Franklin D. Roosevelt, the savior of our people, the great humanitarian. Yes, Roosevelt was not Tom Girdler of Republic Steel who was shooting down the strikers. He was not that kind of a man. For a man who represented the corporate interests in America, he what was what you would call a liberal man. But the main thing that Franklin D. Roosevelt was, he knew that the setup was in trouble. And he knew that Herbert Hoover and Wall Street, what they were doing, were running it into the ground. And he knew and understood that the trouble that was going on in America, and the rebellion that was going on in America, that you couldn't settle it with the guns. He knew that the system had to make concessions in order to save itself. And he proceeded on a course, rendering the kind of service to the corporate system in America that many of them, they were too dumb to realize as to what he was doing for them. They were too dumb to appreciate it. But he saved the system. Yes, under pressure of the multitude of millions, he gave ground on some of the outstanding labor and social legislation the minimum wage and our law, the Wagner Act, unemployment compensation, social security. Not since those early years of the New Deal have we seen a single gain of that importance to the working people and to the people of America. Not one significant piece of social legislation of the same magnitude. When the system was saved, they clamped down again. Yes, we have made progress. The working people have made progress in 40 years. They made progress because every bit of progress they made, they had to drag the system, kicking and scratching and screaming all the time. Not a single concession was made willingly, no matter what the working people have done for the system. Welcome back to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and Jacobin Magazine. I'm still your host, Benjamin Fong. And on this week's episode, we're going to cover some of the key CIO unions not yet discussed in great detail, including the UE, ILWU, TWOC, and PWOC. Now, I know all of these acronyms can be overwhelming, but I will explain each of them in time. There were many other unions that formed the CIO, unions in oil, printing, transport, retail, but the four that I'm covering on this episode were four of the biggest and most influential that I haven't yet gotten into. That voice at the beginning was that of James Matlas, speaking at his retirement in 1975 from the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers Union, or the UE for short. As Ruth Milkman mentioned in episode 3, the UE was one of the three largest unions in the CIO at its peak, along with the auto and steelworkers unions. With its astounding growth in the late 30s and early 40s, its radical leadership and democratic structure, and its devastation with a later communist purge, the UE represents well the promise and limitations of the CIO project. Professor Emeritus of History at Edinburgh University, James Young. The UE began largely because of activities of people at different independent sites. 
it wasn't simply electrical workers from the beginning. There were machine workers, uh, even though it took them a little while to get added on officially to the name of the union. These organizations, you know, a GE plant in Massachusetts and another one in upstate New York, a radio plant in, in the Philadelphia area and also in Buffalo, New York, and so on, were organized independent, basically, of each other. There had been, you know, strikes and so on through the GE system, going back to at least, I don't know, 1911, probably. So there was already some militant culture built into these individual plants in Massachusetts and Syracuse, New York, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Erie, Pennsylvania, and so on. So that was the, the raw materials from which United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union grew. The, the radio uh, workers tried very hard for several years to get accepted as a federal local with the AFL. They just didn't get anywhere officially from 1934 to 36 when they finally gave it up and decided to, to go on. When John L. Lewis and seven other union presidents formed a committee on industrial organization, CIO, the metal trades workers that became the UE, they were allowed to join with the Committee on Industrial Organization against AFL protests. In fact, insistence that they disband the CIO. They began to permit affiliations of other unions, even non-official unions not recognized by the AFL. Eventually, some uh, about 20,000 machinists with uh, the leadership of James Matlas joined, so the machinist gets added to the title, and they're off. The UE was chartered with the CIO on November 16, 1936, with less than 40,000 members. A decade later, it had more than half a million. What accounts for the UE's exponential growth in this period? Hunger. (laughs) Basically. They were ready. They were hungry. In fact, I've been thinking that the spirit and the eagerness to join a union, a real union, there had been concern and and hunger for that for some time now. You know, there was a big surge in labor generally. You know, that old movie line, I think, uh, came through in the 1930s, and that was, uh, we're not going to take it anymore. Whenever CIO people are in a spot and the going gets tough, One of the first songs they turn to is Roll the Union On. This song was written by union people at a southern labor school some years ago. And for sheer power and vigor, this song is just about tops. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. If the boss gets in the way, we're gonna Much like the SWAC with Myron Taylor, the UE also dealt with a set of employers, GE and other electrical appliance manufacturers, that was unusually receptive to unionism. 
It also had uncommonly strong leaders, including James Matlas and Julius Emspach. James Matlas was an immigrant from Romania. He was a very effective organizer. In all likelihood, he was at some point a member of the Communist Party. I base that partly on, you know, what people who were there or around there at the time have told me. I've interviewed dozens of people in that connection. And he was dynamic. He was a dynamic personality. Very impressive, tough guy. Not in terms of violence, but in terms of sincerity and activity and insistence that things be moved along. And Julius Emsbach was more of a, an intellectual radical. He, he was a tool and die maker at, in Syracuse who took advantage of a program by a GE program that encouraged people to take a little time off with some support from them at college or university. And, and he did that. And then he went to Brown University with the intention of getting a PhD in, in something important. <laughs> and, and because of that, he was persuaded by a, fa- a radical faculty member there that he should go back to work and start doing it rather than simply studying it. In addition to these strong leaders, however, the UE also had a less than salutary one in James Carey. The first president of the union was James Carey. It's hard to pinpoint him very accurately, I think, but he makes me think of a uh, a guy who fell victim to the, the short man syndrome, which I've understood about myself and through my family. <laughs> We're all short folks, too. But he was very dynamic. He'd give one hell of a rousing speech, but he really wasn't terribly interested in much more than doing that. He hadn't been in that office very long when there was a rising against him. A bunch of people, not particularly radical, began to argue that he needed to be replaced. And they, in fact, put forth a guy by the name of Albert Fitzgerald, who beat Kerry in a, an election. Fitzgerald's defeat of Kerry in 1941 presaged the later split in the UE, whose left-leaning leadership came under intense pressure from the CIO in the later 40s, and eventually withdrew from the CIO entirely. In turn, the CIO, at this point firmly ensconced in the anti-communist hysteria that I will cover in a later episode, responded by establishing a rival organization, the International Union of Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, or IUE, and put James Carey in charge of it. The UAW and others began, and steelworkers began, raiding UE. Now, you know, that was grounds for those unions to be fined, expelled, or, you know, whatever. I mean, to be disciplined. And that never happened. So it was clearly, it was on by that time, say 1947, late 47, early 48. UE then finally you know, put the question in terms of their own challenge to the CIO, and that was to state that if they did not take steps against this activity, the UE would stop paying dues to the CIO. And so just before the 1948 convention, the UE held its own convention and determined that if by that CIO convention time things had not radically changed, uh, they would not pay dues any longer. The CIO later on claimed they threw them out because communist influence and so on. But in fact, you know, it was partly the old uh, cliche, you can't fire me, I quit. And that was the case. And it was bitter. It was just awful. I interviewed Dave Fitzmorris. When he, he was just about to take over as the president of IUE, which, which the CIO created out of nothing to give Jim Carey something to do and to to destroy the United Electrical Workers. 
they formed the International Union of Electrical Workers. When I interviewed Fitzmaurice, I asked him who won in this whole thing. And he said, I don't think anybody won, but there was one group of losers, the workers. Okay, so that was a brief history of the rise and fall of the UE. Another union to suffer from the purges of the later 40s, which again I'll return to in a later episode, was the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, or the ILWU. Robert Cherney told the story of the 1934 West Coast waterfront strike on episode one, and according to the first secretary-treasurer of the ILWU, Matt Meehan, Possibly the most important achievement resulting from the 1934 strike was the establishment of a strong democratic union. It took three years after the 1934 victory, however, for the West Coast longshore workers to finally break with the AFL to form the independent ILWU and affiliate with the CIO. Here again is Robert Cherney on the life of the ILWU's first president, Harry Bridges. Harry Bridges was born in 1901 in a working-class suburb of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, His father was a real estate developer and wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. Harry Bridges was actually baptized as Alfred Renton Bridges, taking his father's name. But at an early age, as a teenager, he decided he didn't want to be a real estate agent, and he would much rather be like his uncle, Uncle Henry, nicknamed Harry, who was a union organizer and an organizer for the Australian Labor Party. Uh, So uh, young Bridges took the name Harry and, and kept it the rest of his life. He went to sea as a teenager, shipping out between Melbourne and Tasmania, and later between Melbourne and New Zealand. He had a chance to get a ship to San Francisco, which he had always read about in Jack London novels. He read voraciously. And so he went to San Francisco, began shipping out between San Francisco and uh, up and down the Pacific coast. Uh, In 1921, he ended up in New Orleans. And he met some IWW members and was recruited into the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and learned some important things. He learned that all workers belong to a class, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, and other such potential discriminatory characteristics. And he also learned about organizing at the point of production. Uh, being able to really speak to people, to working people, uh, where they are, where they work. He kept those lessons, and he went to work on the San Francisco waterfront a a year or so later, and worked on the San Francisco waterfront uh, all through the 1920s, dealing with the problems of the Blue Book, the, the lack of any job security, and so forth. By 1933, when Local 38 79 was chartered, Bridges was part of a group of militant longshore workers who met every week or two in a Workmen's Educational Association meeting hall on Albion Street. They called themselves the Albion Hall Group, and they really formed a caucus within that local calling for militant action. And it led to Bridges 
and two other members of the Albion Hall group being elected to the local executive board when Local 3879 held its first election of officers or in uh, mid-1933. Bridges became the president of the ILWU. He remained uh, there until uh, he finally retired in 1979. So he he remained the president of that union throughout his uh, long life. He was constantly under attack. He was painted as a communist beginning in May of 1934, as soon as his name first hit the newspapers. There were people in San Francisco who said he should be deported. He's a communist. And there were several efforts by the Federal Immigration and Naturalization Service or by the Federal Department of Justice to deport him, either to prohibit him from becoming a citizen or once he did become a citizen, to strip his citizenship and send him back to Australia. When up spoke Harry Bridges, said us workers must get wise. Our wives and kids will starve to death if we don't get organized. Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas. Fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO. Bridges was a radical and militant leader, but much like Matlis and Emspec, he was also a shrewd bread-and-butter unionist. And in fact, he saw those two things as intimately connected. Here's Bridges describing the need to understand the employer-employee relationship as an antagonistic one. This is from an interview with Bill Moyers. The whole thing is on YouTube, and I highly recommend it, start to finish. As you look around, you see a lot of collusion and collaboration between labor leaders and the establishment. There is a certain amount of that, and it's wrong. And even though in many cases the people think they're doing a job that's good for the rank and file, in many cases the rank and file worker supports it. He thinks the same thing, too. That's a good way that maybe strikes a rat law. Let's do a nice, respectable job and get in there with economists and lawyers and have a nice set of negotiations. That's a lot of baloney. Because you've got to be, and that's the big fuss uh, about strikes. The workers and the organized workers, the unified workers, you know, they have one weapon that they only possess and nobody else does. That's the strike weapon. That order has to be there at all times to be used. And all these attempts to outlaw it or to modify it and this, that, and the other, including these respectable meetings on top of negotiations, they don't produce as much for the workers, even though they produce a lot. As in my opinion, the use or the threat of the use of the strike weapon. It's a, it's a terrible thing. It's only to be used as a last resort. It's very dangerous. And when you start to use it, you better know what you're doing. But I still belong to the school. And when you say to an employer, look, you're a nice guy, but here's the price. If you don't pay, you're going to get shut down. Because I've never met an employer yet in all my experience. You go in there, and an extra penny of wages is one penny a less of profits. So we have to get around that first. I remember when the employers used to sit down and argue with me, these ship owners around, about it. it took us years to straighten them out. That they was really in business to, to give us jobs. They gave me that kind of a line. So get on your own side of the cockeyed table. I represent the workers. You're in business to make money. And when we agree on that, then we'll take it from there. After many, many years, they finally got around to that. It was called the new look here. Mm-hmm. And a great man was heading the employees at that time. Jay Paul Senshaw is dead now, because he was a great man. Hmm? 
on the other side of the fence. That was the new look when they agreed with us that their number one job was making money. After many, many years of trying to kid me that their number one job was to try to take care of me. Like many on the left, Bridges was committed to racial equality, and the ILWU, specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area, was firmly dedicated to overcoming racial division on the docks. Professor of History at Western Illinois University, Peter Cole. So in 1919, as in many other American workplaces and industries and cities, San Francisco dock workers went on strike in 1919, just after War I. That union, however, like other unions before it in San Francisco, a strong union town were also racially exclusive. And not surprisingly, employers used African-Americans and Black West Indians as strike breakers in 1919. And that was one of the reasons that that strike failed. Harry Bridges was a committed anti-racist. Bridges was not alone. There was also communists on the waterfront, as well as other forms of leftists. And it was really the white leftists who very clearly were at the forefront of fighting against racism in the union. They were saying this before the big strike in their waterfront newsletter, where they're saying, look, we got killed in 1919. And so they integrated the gangs after they won in San Francisco. The gangs, which had been racially exclusive, became racially inclusive. And then during the World War II years, when the Black migration of the Bay Area skyrockets and several thousand African-Americans end up working on the waterfront, they fight very clearly for racial equality. Here's Cleophis Williams, the first black president of ILWU Local 10, on the experience of coming to the waterfront in the 1940s. Many um, black workers thought that uh, this was a utopia. It was so different and so, so different from things that we had been used to especially in 10. I can speak for 10 because I was in 10. We engaged in, in struggle, but uh, even the level of struggle was so high above what most of us had experienced in Arkansas and Texas and uh, other places in the South that we were willing to get involved and take our chances at the results. If we share each other's misery, in the church we say we share each other's burdens. And that's, that's where it is. There are no, I did this and I did that down here on the waterfront. We did it. We did it together. We fought these battles. I only have one vote and every other member is equal. No, it's only one vote. And it's a, it's a great union. It was great for me, and it was great for many of my uh, colleagues. My peer group benefited well. They certainly benefited economically because we were able to acquire things that we never dreamed that we could acquire in such great numbers. Not just a few, but across the board, you had an, even, an equal opportunity to get it. And that was, we're not talking about the government and these propositions. We're talking about a union that gave you a chance, a chance to be somebody, to hold your head high. As the W in the name indicates, the ILWU also used its power on the waterfront to march inland and organize warehouse workers. Peter Cole. 
So in 36, 37, it's very clear that there is energy, uh, not just on the docks, but right next door, literally across the street, because a lot of these warehouses were also dockside. It's often the people from the same neighborhoods, the same communities, the same families. Warehouse workers were an obvious target, but also an obvious threat. If the longshore workers were union, but across the street, you have non-union members who get paid way less, who work longer hours in dangerous conditions with far less control over their work. It's only a matter of time right before the dock workers themselves will be under assault. And so they literally just had to cross the street to organize the Bay Area warehouses, both in San Francisco and in the East Bay. And that became Local 6 of the ILWU. Local 10 was the longshore local in the Bay Area. Local 6 was actually warehouse. And that was very effective. Tens of thousands of warehouse workers will end up joining the ILWU in the 30s and then in the World War II era. This was not without controversy. Both the rival longshore organization, the ILA, as well as the Teamsters, challenged the ILWU's right to organize warehouse workers, resulting in a prolonged jurisdictional battle between these unions. But despite the ILWU's militancy and clear willingness to raise the ire of AFL unions, CIO leaders were still reluctant to work with Bridges, given his radical associations. But there was no leader of similar stature on the West Coast, and the CIO desperately needed to expand its geographical reach, despite the odd cultural fit with West Coast traditions. Eric Loomis. CIO is located mostly in a fairly small number of states. And so, yeah, one of the strategies, of course, was to expand to other parts of the country. And the West Coast made sense. The West Coast had a relatively robust union tradition, um, at least compared to, say, the Great Plains or the South um, or other places that it really needed to expand if it was going to succeed in the long term. But what the West Coast really lacked, at least until World War II, was the kind of large-scale industries that the CIO was really based upon. So these unions are mostly pretty small. They're longshoremen, people who load and unload boats. They're timber workers. You know, they were miners. They were farm workers and things of this nature. And so, and and a lot of them had very strong communist ties um, or at least radical ties. I mean, they're still in the 30s, uh, remnant IWW members, for instance, in some of these areas. And that's really kind of like the last place that the IWW was sort of kind of had people identifying as that. And so it's a weird fit. Culturally, it's a weird fit. Their politics are very different. The structures of work are very different. This changes somewhat when the the auto and airplane industries begin to move out to California and shipbuilding industries in World War II. But in those early years, yeah, I mean, it's unions with a really strong radical edge, many of which had a lot of uh, former IWW members in them. And this did not always go over very well with, with Lewis, but to some extent with some of the other communists as well. They were operating in places like New York because the kind of West Coast socialism was of a much more independent character in many ways than some of the, say, more communist-based unions in the Northeast. Bridges would be appointed West Coast Regional Director of the CIO in 1937, only to be stripped of the title two years later. And then, in the late 40s, the ILWU would, much like the UE, break with the CIO in the heated atmosphere of post-war anti-communism. But in the late 30s, Bridges was the key link outside of CIO strongholds. Well, you had a slogan, Workers of the World Unite. It's still a good slogan. It's an old Marxist slogan. I still use it. And that's how simple it was. Workers of the World Unite. You've got nothing to lose but your change. Still as good as the day it was set. We still operate by it. At least I try to. In his History of the CIO, which, if it's not evident by now, is the key source on the CIO, Robert Zieger writes, 
CIO expansion into the Far West came as the result of an arrangement with a leader with a strong power base. Expansion into the South, however, presented quite a different challenge. Movement South was equally essential. Tens of thousands of metal miners, steel workers, textile workers, food and tobacco workers, pulp and paper workers, furniture workers, and other industrial workers toiled in low-wage jobs. Historically, low-wage industries, such as cotton textiles, not only jeopardized the higher standards of northern workers in the same industry, but established region-wide patterns that weakened wages and labor standards in other industries, directly in the South and indirectly elsewhere. There was also a political dimension. With its one-party system and its widespread disenfranchisement of lower-income voters, the South was a conservative bulwark. Powerful Southern Committee chairmen and city and regional bosses, little troubled by prospects of rank-and-file voter rebellion, brokered effectively with the Roosevelt administration, making sure that federal money flowing into the South remained under their control and disturbed as little as possible existing relations of racial and class power. Here's Steve Frazier on the genesis of the Textile Workers Organizing Committee. The Textile Workers Organizing Committee was a project undertaken by the newly formed CIO to organize a key industry in the economy, uh, had more employees than almost any, I think, than any other industry in the in the economy, at least a million and a half people in cotton textiles alone. So it was a vital piece of the story of building industrial unionism in America. It had a long history of failure. That is to say, before TWOC, there had been many attempts to organize textile workers. Of course, the most famous are the great strikes in Lawrence and Patterson before World War I. The one in Lawrence was successful. The one in Patterson was a defeat. There was a major strike wave during that remarkable year of 1919 that included the textile industry in the North. So there's a long history of textile worker rebellion and attempts to organize, most of it a failure. And then, of course, just preceding TWOC by a few years was the great textile strike of 1934, which was both a northern and southern event and displayed the enormous militance and desperation of textile mill workers, but was a defeat. And very little came out of it. The union that nominally represented textile workers, the United Textile Workers Union, was uh, held in large disregard both by the immigrant workforce in the north and also by the southern mill hands. And the union was pretty ineffective during that 34 strike. So then you get the CIO and the decision is made to make a major effort to organize the textile industry. Uh, Sidney Hillman, is essentially appointed to run that campaign. That is, in collaboration with Lewis, they decide he's going to run it. Obviously, it's an allied industry to the clothing industry. Hillman had wanted to organize textiles for many years during the 1919 strike. Musty, who ran the rebellious union of in that strike, had gone to Hillman asking for a merger. Hillman was very interested in that, but was also a bit scared off by the wobbly presence in the northern textile industry and was also worried about the survival of his own union. But this was a long-term plan of Hillman's to organize and strengthen the leverage of the union by organizing this allied industry. 
And uh, so they formed this textile workers organizing committee to do it. And they commit very serious resources, hundreds of organizers, very carefully chosen. Textile workers organizing committee organizes both North and South, but the South is the great vulnerability and the wholly unorganized part of the industry. So they choose their organizers very carefully. They commit serious uh, financial resources and embark on this campaign in 1937 to millions of American workers, the letters CIO meant salvation. Salvation from poverty and hardship and suffering. Salvation from slavery. Free and independent workers in a free and democratic America. For 36 years, the United Textile Workers had tried unsuccessfully to build a union. The Textile Workers Organizing Committee was formed. Sidney Hillman of the CIO Clothing Workers Union became chairman. A fund of $1 million, half of it, a gift from the clothing workers, was raised. 650 organizers were sent into textile centers. New hope stirred in the hearts of textile workers. Here at last were funds, leadership, help from powerful unions. For Hillman and the CIO Central Command, this textile workers organizing effort is as much a political as it is an industrial organizing project. It comes at a time in 37 and 38 when the Roosevelt regime and the CIO leadership is committed to trying to force a major political realignment in American politics by transforming the political and social structure of the South, which of course was at that time and remained for many years afterwards a great obstacle to New Deal reform. And the strategic initiative to do that included organizing the textile industry, passing the Fair Labor Standards Act, which of course in theory would have had enormous impact in the South, and purging the Democratic Party of its Southern, Southwestern, conservative elements. And those three things were thought of together by the leadership of the CIO, Hillman, Lewis, and others. Compared to the SWAC, TWOC saw no big organizing breakthroughs, despite the massive investment. As one contemporary observer put it, compared to Southern textiles, steel was a playful kitten. It's an overdetermined failure. First of all, and the peculiarities of the Southern textile industry particularly militate against successful organizing. It's a highly fragmented industry. There's no key set of enterprises, which if you get them, you get the rest of the industry. The whole social ecology of the Southern textile industry works against unionization. It's a closely knit familial capitalist world where there's overlapping ties between the merchant elite, the planter elite, and the textile elite. It's an economy which is undergoing the latest phase of what might be called primitive accumulation or dispossession from the land, thanks in part to the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, which favors big farmers. So you have hundreds of thousands of farmers losing their land. They become a labor pool desperate for work. That's a bad situation in which to try to organize unions. You have the enormous influence of company towns, which still exist in the Southern industry, which places these workers under great dependency. You have churches, which answer to the textile barons in the region uh, so that the uh, organizing efforts are constantly being invaded against. You have an all-sided propaganda attack on the TWOC 
as urban, Yankee, Jewish, communist, you name it. The Klan is involved in repression. These Southern mill owners do not hesitate to use armed force to bust unions. I think about 20 organizers are killed during the course of the organizing effort. And then you have, as the kind of coup de grace, the recession of 1937, which is devastating. Mills go bankrupt all over the place. There are even more unemployed workers ready to scab who need work. And then you have a kind of uh, rather still persisting provincial pietistic culture. Given all of that, you might say it's not surprising it failed. And then on top of that, the purge of the Democratic Party and the Fair Labor Standards Act, although passed, ends up being a, when it comes to the Southern economy, a pale shadow of what it might have been. It exempts the whole agricultural sector, domestic labor. So that's, in my view, why it doesn't enjoy the success that SWAC did in the steel industry. TWOC would transform into a permanent organization, the Textile Workers Union of America, or TWUA, in 1939. There were some notable wins, but no dramatic breakthrough, and membership numbers were always inflated. At one point, while claiming a membership of 300,000, dues payments to the CIO reflected a membership of less than 40,000. All right, so the last group I'm going to cover here is another organizing committee, the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee, or PWOC. Rick Halpern. So beginning in 1933, 1934, industrial workers across the U.S. in almost every industry began talking to each other, began organizing, began thinking how they might link their project to that of Roosevelt and the New Deal. And meatpacking was no exception. And in places like Chicago, East St. Louis, Sioux City, Kansas City, anywhere there was a major packing center, workers began thinking about ways in which they could uh, secure a bit of dignity on the shop floor, secure their, their wages in the midst of an ongoing depression. And in the middle 30s, really based on the initiatives of workers in those places I mentioned, as well as some smaller outlying packing centers um, in Minnesota, Austin, uh, elsewhere in Iowa, came together and formed the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee, PWOC, which at that time was affiliated with the new Congress of Industrial Organizations uh, headed by John L. Lewis. But a key point that needs to be emphasized is that the locus of activity uh, was at the local level. And even beyond that, the locus of activity was in key departments in each of these giant packing houses, tended to be on the killing floors where workers had inordinate power um, because they could stop the movement 
of the line. They could stop the flow of pork or lamb or steer carcasses through the killing process. And then that would exert pressure on the company because dating back to the aggressive era, there was government inspection of all meat. And if those carcasses hung for more than a given amount of time, the company would lose thousands, sometimes tens of thousands worth of, of dollars. So workers in those killing floors really took the lead in not just organizing other workers in the plant, but demonstrating that workers' power could deliver very real, real gains and that the power of those workers in key structural positions could protect other workers. And under the auspices of the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee, slowly but gradually, some of the major employers, Armour, Wilson, Swift, Cudahy, began to be organized, and a few even began to sign contracts uh, in the later 30s. The Chicago stockyards had been written about a great deal, including in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, and were a key site of packing house organizing. This was the largest stockyards. It was the largest concentration of meatpacking companies, and it was nestled in a part of South Chicago so that it was surrounded by the neighborhoods where packing house workers lived. I think it's also important because in some ways the Chicago stockyards were a microcosm of American capitalism in the early 20th century. The mechanization of death, which was at the heart of meatpacking, had reached its furthest extremes in the packing houses of Chicago. And also this was sort of a company town within a major metropolitan area. It had its own police department, had its own fire department, it pumped its own water, etc. So this really was, if you will, a citadel of American capitalism. And if that could be organized, and workers understood this at the time, if the Chicago stockyards could be organized, and there was really no limits to what the workers' movement of the 30s might accomplish. The CIO's efforts to overcome existing racial and ethnic divides was nowhere more evident than in the packing house organizing drives. Racial ethnic divisions had been the Achilles heel of the workers' movement in the meatpacking industry. Strikes in 1905, the 1917 to 22 organizing campaign, ultimately fell apart because of racial and ethnic conflict. And the workers who came together to form the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee knew, both from personal experience, if they had been around in the 1917 to 22 period, or from hearing about those earlier phases of struggle, they knew that if they were going to succeed, they had to overcome racial and ethnic division. Probably the most important way this was done was on those killing floors that I mentioned, because during the 1920s, the packing company, falsely believing they were buying themselves strike insurance, quite consciously promoted African-American and Mexican workers into positions on the kill floors. And as one colleague, Paul Street, has put it, this became a dialectical boomerang in the 1930s, because it's precisely those workers that took the lead in organizing other workers in the plants under the banner of the CIO. Partially because these were led by black workers, but partially because of the left-wing leadership in many of the PWOC-organized plants, there was a belief that industrial unionism in the 1930s meant no distinctions based on race, ethnicity, gender, 
No distinctions in terms of seniority, no distinctions in terms of treatment, and ultimately when contracts were signed, no distinctions in terms of pay. And that was a pretty important principle. I'd say it was a first principle of the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee. We see it across the CIO, but I think in meatpacking, because of the very high concentration of Black workers and Latino workers, this became not just a talking point. It became a point around which organizing actually proceeded in not just plant after plant, but department after department. Now, this didn't mean that there were no tensions. There certainly were. And it also, I think, would be romantic to think that outside of work, Black workers, Latino workers, Poles, Slav, socialized together. They might have done so in the context of the union, but there were real limits to this interracialism. But within the union, on the job, in the union hall, this really was, as I said, the first principle of, of organization. Some of the early mass leaders were African-Americans. Um, one who really stands out is a man named Henry Johnson, Hank Johnson, who got his start in West Texas, son of a wobbly, begins working for the United Mine Workers. And all through this period, Johnson is traveling across the Midwest, speaking to, to workers after shifts um, in union halls and almost always appearing side by side with white workers, often Polish or Croatian uh, workers to actually demonstrate to the rank and file that the commitment to interracialism certainly extended into the upper ranks of the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee and even into the CIO itself. Many, many other mass leaders emerge in this period who are Mexican, who are African-American, who represent the various kinds of East European immigrant groups that made up the bulk of the workforce. Like many in the CIO, the packing house workers bore an antagonistic relationship with the AFL affiliate that organized in the same industry, in this case, the Amalgamated Meat Cutters. The vast bulk of the Amalgamated's membership didn't work in packing houses. They were what we might call block butchers, retail butchers. And every time in the early 20th century that the Amalgamated Meat Cutters entered the packing houses, entered the stockyards, that experience ended with defeat. In the middle of the 1930s, when Packing House Workers Organizing Committee is becoming active, and certainly in the later 30s and the World War II years, when the UPWA is the dominant union in the meat packing side of the meat industry, the amalgamated is not looked kindly upon by the vast majority of packing house workers. And it responds in a number of ways, one of which, which proves in the long run to be very damaging, is to be anti-communist because the UPWA had some very prominent and open left-wing leaders, both Trotskyists and members of the CPUSA. And the amalgamated also in certain locales, particularly in the southern part of the United States and in the uh, southwest, appealed to white workers on the basis of a thinly disguised racism. In other words, join with the AMC, become an AFL member, and you won't have to share your locker room with African-Americans. You won't have to integrate your departments that have remained uh, lily white and so on. And this was never a major factor in the stockyards and packing houses in this period, but it was a thorn in the side of the UPWA. 
there's a disastrous strike in 1948. The packing house workers go out in violation of the newly passed Taft-Hartley Act, and they are defeated. And the amalgamated reappears at this time and tries to raid 22 different packing houses across the country using anti-communism, using uh, an appeal to white racism, and is defeated, I think, in 17 of the 22 uh, elections. And in some ways, that marks the end of open conflict between uh, the UPWA and the amalgamated. In an irony, when deindustrialization in the 1950s and 1960s decimates the meatpacking workforce, shrinks it dramatically, the two unions merge in the later 1960s. And then they merge again to form the United Food and Commercial Workers. They merge with the retail clerks. And so there is a a chapter in which the UPWA merges with its longtime rival. David Brody tells the story slightly differently. It wasn't just that AFL unions like the AMC benefited from while undermining CIO drives, but that there was genuine organizing also going on in the AFL, which proved to be more long-lasting than that of the CIO. In the 1930s, the packing house workers looked to be much the more dynamic union. It's very militant, had a strong CP segment to it, was very much out front on on race issues. It was a very progressive and dynamic union. But it stopped growing. That is, after it organized meatpacking, it stopped growing. On the other hand, the meat cutters that were thought of as a kind of a retrograde union in the 1930s of these meat cutters, they began to organize locally. The thing about this industrial unions is that they were highly centralized so that organizing took place out of the main nodes, not out of the local unions. Whereas in the case of the meat cutters, it was the local unions that looked around and said, oh, whoa, wait a minute, where are these workers that are similar to us that we can organize and get more dues payers? And so you got these local unions that began to just explode in the 1930s and 1940s, acting at the local level. And so in the 1950s, suddenly the meatpacking industry began to change. It had been concentrated in the great packing house centers, Chicago, Omaha, and so forth, and these big packing houses. And then what happened is that as a result of a revolution in transportation from using railroads to using trucks, it was possible to decentralize and have the processing take place closer to where the cattle themselves were instead of them being shipped to Chicago or to Omaha. And so that particular development was taken over by the meat cutters while the packing house workers just began to shrink. The structure really wasn't adequate to the industrial changes that were taking place. And so this is what happened more broadly, that the AFL unions taking in part what the industrial unions did in following suit and then acting on the basis of the advantages that they had began to grow grew much more rapidly than the CIO unions. So the CIO unions really represented, in the long run, it turns out, a stagnant sector as compared with the way the AFL operated. 
The CIO really, because it was wedded to a particular industrial segment, lived and died by that. And when that segment began to decline, as it did, for example, in meatpacking, and then in another decade or so in steel and in other industries, it wasn't dynamic anymore. On next week's episode of Organize the Unorganized, we'll get to the big shakeup at the top of the CIO when John L. Lewis leaves the organization on which he left such a mark. We'll also get into the war escalation and how it both benefited and constrained the CIO. See you next time.